Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live and tonight it is my special honor to welcome our guest Mark Pellegrino with us. Mark, thank you for being our guest. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk to you. And, you know, just going over your resume, I mean, I knew this before I went over your IMDb resume. The first thing that I ever saw you in, you this might surprise you, might not, was Lethal Weapon 3. Nah. <laughs> okay. You had, you know, kind of a big role. I mean, you were taken out at the police station, but uh, you were involved in that big, you know, for people who don't remember, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were involved in that uh, beginning scene with the car chase with Mel Gibson. You were driving that armored car, correct? Yeah, it was, a, it was an extraordinarily long fight scene with Mel Gibson, which was very fun. I think in the whole movie, though, I said one word, which is... Uh, somebody's name uh, and then they shot me the guy who took you out the guy who took you out i forget the guy i forget the actor's name but um his last his words were to you hello billy then he puts it in your head goodbye billy and he takes you out so uh i mean going back to that time we're going back to 92 uh i believe is when lethal weapon 3 came out how much how many changes have you seen in the industry oh my god uh i mean it's completely different now uh you know but that was back when there was a a sort of a i don't want to say rigid studio system but a definite set of rigid protocols you had to go through to get a part and uh now this the streaming platforms have changed everything Mm -hmm. um whereas before you had to work and work and work for you know 10 20 years before you possibly got a part that put you on the map and then started your career uh now you can do a youtube video that gets uh 20 million views and get the best representation in hollywood and start a career as a producer yep yep yep. technology has made uh (laughs) entertainment accessible uh and there are some positives and negatives to that because as viewers we are drowning in content and there are some very good shows that i feel are not being renewed or getting skipped over because there is just so much content out there do you feel the same way do you feel there is way too much content out there or do you feel the more content the better well as an actor the more content the better that that that's more opportunity to work more opportunity for lots of uh, artists out there to ply their craft um it's it's true that it excuse me it gets overwhelming and um you can't possibly catch up with the content anymore and the content is becoming so good because there's there's crossover now with uh with feature filmmakers and producers directors and actors <clears throat> so you get you get this amazing cinematic stuff now um, coming into TV, and it's not a rarity. It's uh, it's now sort of mundane and sort of every day. So you're right. Some shows are going to get squeezed out because the competition is really stiff in that respect. But hey, that's great. Uh, let it happen. More work for us and uh, more content for the people. It, it, Gives them a lot of stuff to stream. They'll never catch up on it. It's great. Uh, that That's a great point. Now, <clears throat> speaking about crossover, let's go to 2001 and Mulholland Drive, the Oscar-nominated Mulholland Drive. You played a hitman, Joe, in that. Now, a lot of people don't know, but Mulholland Drive was a made-for-TV movie back in 99. 
which you also appeared in, and then it got crossed over into the big screen. Is that accurate? Well, sort of close. Um, it was originally shot as a pilot for a television series that uh, David Lynch was going to, I guess, produce and direct <clears throat> very much like he did with Twin Peaks. And the original story was a linear story about a girl who goes to Hollywood and gets caught up in this uh, this crazy, not 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 like a nightmare, but uh, a, a crazy scandal with this woman um, who's being chased by various folks, me being one of them. <clears throat> Apparently, uh, it was reviewed as the best new TV series you'll never see. And uh, <clears throat> ABC, I guess, passed on it because it was too expensive. So I don't even know that the original version made it to television in any form. Okay. I think I think David Lynch um, took it at that point. I don't know if he you know, repurchased it back or what he did, but he decided to recreate the entire phenomenon of Mulholland Drive and cut half of it and reshot it and made a made it into a Hollywood nightmare. Now, I, I don't know if that's reflective of the experience that he had with the, the network that wouldn't take it because it was too expensive, even though it was a fantastic, uh, oh, yeah. fantastic show um, with great actors in it, really fine people or what. But, you know, the the, the thing that ended up making it into the cinematic world was uh was a very different phenomenon from the TV show. And it was a huge <clears throat> success. It was a very big, big success. Like I said, it got nominated, I believe, for Best Director uh, for the Oscars. Now, you have done a lot of stints on these crime television shows, NYPD Blue, CSI, Criminal Minds, Quantico, the list goes on and on and on. Now... You, like I said, appeared in NYPD Blue, which is one of my favorite all-time shows. Yeah. Now, you actually you. played three different characters from 97 to 2002 in a total of four different episodes. Now, NYPD Blue was very well known for doing that. They they didn't only do it with you. They done it with several other characters as well. <coughs> and not only NYPD Blue, it was done pretty frequently in the 90s. You don't see that anymore, where an actor is brought back on a long-running TV show to play multiple characters. What are your feelings on that? I guess Stephen Bochco, uh, if Stephen Bochco liked you, he brought you back. And if there was enough time for the audience to sort of forget that you played one character two seasons ago, then they were perfectly fine casting you in another. It's, it is a rare phenomenon, and I do know of a couple other people that happened to on NYPD Blue. It, it, it ended up that Stephen liked me so much that he cast me in NYPD Blue 2069. Yeah which was a pilot that never went anywhere. And I didn't have to go to network for it because uh, I guess he'd seen enough of my, my stuff on that show. Um, I got to tell you, it was, it was great working on that show. Um, I loved David Milch. I thought he was, you know, a genius. And, um, and I felt like I was at home working with guys like Dennis Franz and Jimmy Smits. They, they were just really authentic, pure people, nice people to work with. And, you know, they were telling great stories. So, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be one of those weirdos that got cast three times in, the, in that. That's awesome. Uh, now, going back to the crime shows, like I said, I just listed all the shows you were on. You've done so many of them. I mean, you have been on a lot of hit shows. You've been in a lot of great movies. But when it comes to the crime <clears throat> drama shows, you've been in so many of them. 
Have you done so many now that you're like, you know what? I'm tired with this television genre. I don't want to do that anymore. No, I mean, I love work. I love practicing and whoever's going to give me the opportunity to work and practice. Um, I'm in, you know, for me, every show is a new learning experience and you have to negotiate new problems every time, find new ways of trying to be real, trying, trying to bring the character to life. And, uh, that's always a challenge that it never gets old to me, that kind of thing. So regardless of the medium, um, I think, uh, if, if, if there's work in it, I'm, I'm going to do it. That's, that's what makes me feel purposeful, you know, as, you know, is, is going to work as, as many days as it's possible for an actor to go to work and, and, and doing the best job I possibly can. And doing what you love, right? Yeah. Now you, like we said, been on a lot of hit shows, lost, uh, is there any character that you've portrayed on television? Now, let's just stick with television for this. That you really have uh, favor over other characters in your career? Yeah, um, there's probably a number of people watching this who will know the answer to this question. Uh, my favorite character on TV is Gavin Q. Baker the uh, Third from The Closer. Okay. And uh, he was just a fun character to play. It was it was one of those times where I got to um, do a sort of Johnny Depp-esque thing. You know, when Johnny Depp works on a character, he, he takes cartoon characters and, and other real-life folks, and he sort of blends them together and, and into a melange that makes his, his character choices, right? So for... Uh, um, for, um, you know, Jack Sparrow, he, he, he put Keith Richards in it, you know, and, yeah. and for Gavin Q Baker, the third, I put Carson, uh, I put, uh, Tim Gunn and, and, um, and Carson Kressley in, 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 in merged them in, into this singular character of this flamboyantly gay, um, uh, lawyer. So I loved being able to, to blend real life people in, in, into a f- fictional characters. No, it was really it- fun. Is that something you do with all your parts is try to draw on real people for inspiration and find that perfect match to bring it to the screen? If I can, if I can, I do that. I don't often have time um, to, to do that kind of hunting. Um, but if, if somebody from my life, uh, if they have a, a flavor, a way of talking or a way of acting that I like, it may find its way into something that I'm doing. unconsciously or consciously now you know you are now very well known for playing lucifer on supernatural okay you were in like a total of at least 38 episodes on supernatural throughout the years um you also had a great big wonderful part in the big lebowski uh how important was that role to you and how it helped you set the trend of you playing villains and immoral characters because you've played a lot of those <clears throat> yeah i don't know that um if if anything it might have broken a trend you know because that character was a stoner surfer guy there, there was there's a quality to him that was very different than any villain character that i I'd, I'd played in the past and you know when you're doing a movie you don't oftentimes know that you're you're in the midst of participating in a classic. Um, I certainly didn't know that at the time that I was doing the big 
Lebowski. Um, I, I knew that I was working with great people and great directors and writers who, who had done amazing work in the past. Um, I had no idea that this was going to be sort of at the top of their list and uh, a perennial favorite for people, just like I didn't know Capote would be as mm -hmm. great as it turned out. That's you're another just, great one. You're just working, you know, you're, you're doing the best you can to, to render a character that hopefully you've had time to think about. And that's all that's on your radar at that moment. How it turns out later on is certainly not up to me, uh, uh, but, um, but you hope that it's going to be something interesting enough to, to have some purchase in the culture. And the Big Lebowski certainly, <laughs> certainly had that. Now, being in the industry for as long <clears throat> as you have, do you still find yourself uh, pushing your limits when it comes to acting and you're learning new stuff uh, even, to, even today? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm pushing my limits on television or film. Um, I do. I certainly do it in theater, where I play a lot more with uh, character. Mm -hmm. um, and I find I find television and and film to have their own peculiar challenges. That, regardless of how long you've been in the business, they they always are challenges. And um, I guess what what makes you a professional in the end is how how well and consistently you deal with those challenges. And it's always an on the job training experience for me because each crew is different, every environment is different. And every time you have to seize the property of your own self and and your uh, your artistic vision in a new way, um, and sometimes I'm successful at that, sometimes I'm not. So uh... now we have had a lot of guests on this show who, almost all of them, have done single episodes on a show, uh, and you get to work with a director or a cast for maybe a couple of days. <clears throat> you do your scenes, then you're done. How hard is it for you as an actor? to come on a set with an established cast and meet a director for the first time and put your best foot forward uh, when it comes to your acting. It's tough. It's tough because you can't have a bad day and you only have those two days to quote unquote shine. And the series regulars, you know, they can they can have an off time, you know, because they're going to have plenty of film time to, to make up for it. I remember thinking that exact thing when I was working with um, with Dennis Franz and, and doing a scene, one of the scenes where I played a junkie or something. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wasn't, I, I wasn't happy with the scene because there were so many physical obstacles to overcome in the scene. I had to projectile vomit and it was a very emotional scene. I remember it, yeah. now, now, now people are wondering why is he saying emotional and projectile vomiting? Well, you know, that requires a certain amount of uh, mental focus, but in order to, to, to do the effect of projectile vomiting, they had to attach a stiff hose to the side of my head and paste it to the side of my head. It was a practical gag. It wasn't something they did in CGI because they didn't have CGI back then. Mm -hmm. So I had to do a scene, an entire version of the scene, where I had to be emotional and making a point and, and jonesing you know, for drugs while being almost completely still and unable to move because of this practical gag that was going to happen and that presents real real obstacles to having a human moment with another person mm -hmm. um, and that's in addition to coming on a set with people you don't know with a director you may not have a relationship with 
and trying to get in sync with the cast and crew that has likely been working for many, many years together. Some, some cast and crews are very easy to adapt to because they understand the, the difficulty of doing that kind of thing and the crew and cast accommodate you. Um, and that was certainly the way it was on Lost because I came into a, a show in the season finale, basically. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> they'd been together for years and had established a, a sort of working synchronicity and great popularity. And, and for this new guy to come in who happened to be the... The, the character upon which the entire island rested, um, that that could have been a lot of a lot of pressure to feel, um, but everybody made me feel right at home and that's great. Made me feel very comfortable, and that's important if you're because I've been a series regular, I've been a guest star, and I think it's important as a series regular that you know you you're a bit of a politician, you're a diplomat, and you make sure you make people in your cast feel welcome to be a part of the show. Now, you have had the honor of working with other great actors. Um, you mentioned Dennis Franz, who I think is just an absolutely amazing actor, and he portrayed Andy Sipowitz, and all the Emmys he won for that were just phenomenal, and he deserved each and every one of them. And uh, by the way, not to interrupt you, but I I was obsessed with Hill Street Blues. Yeah. I, I would go to a jiu-jitsu class and leave my jiu-jitsu class early, tell my jiu-jitsu teacher I have to bug out because of, I'd make up some reason. Every Thursday night, I had to be in front of that TV set to watch the new episode of Hill Street and Blues. And that's another Stephen Bochco series. And another Stephen Bochco series that was very revolutionary at the time. It was almost cinema ver verite. I mean, that the, the opening... You know, the opening um, roll call was always something that I, I, I sort of I had to get. Uh, I had to I had to see that opening roll call. But that's where Andy Sipowitz came for the became a character for the first time. And mm -hmm. he was a bad cop. He was a cop that got his butt kicked mm -hmm. uh, by one of the other cops because he was such an evil, evil dude and on the take. But he was so good. I remember like, oh, my God, I wasn't an actor then. I didn't even think about acting. But Dennis Franz actually made me pause and and actually think about how great that character was and how I would like to see him in some other venue. And of course, he was in Hill Street Blues. So when you got the, the, the chance to actually work with him, I'm <laughs> sure you must have been ecstatic. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I, I was. And, and to, you know, sometimes you can you can you can meet your heroes and find out they're not all they're cracked up to be. And uh and that wasn't the case with him. He yeah. was one of the sweetest, most down-to-earth people I've met. Yeah, yeah. I've I haven't had the pleasure of talking with him, but I I've seen many interviews, and that's exactly how he comes across. Now, yeah. uh, when you're walking down the street and people recognize you, what is? I mean, is it supernatural that they recognize you from nowadays, or do you get surprised every now and again? Yeah, I get surprised. I've had people walk up to me and um, and want to talk to me about Mulholland Drive, um, or or say Quantico is one of their favorite shows. Um, mostly, it's Supernatural and Lost and a little bit of Dexter. Dexter, yes, that's another great yeah. one. Uh, yeah. So now, staying with Supernatural, the character you played Lucifer on Supernatural had. I mean, this is a character that's been portrayed so many different times. What was your trick to bringing a new spin to Lucifer? The one that the audience may have not have seen yet. I think the spin was 
was in his humanity. Uh, you know, most people who play the devil, um, they're playing an archangel, and you you sort of feel it. You know, mm -hmm. there's a there is a there is a larger than life sensibility to to the to almost all of the actors who have, who have portrayed that character. But Lucifer in the supernatural um, myth was a a a boy, a a, a abandoned son, a um, abandoned brother who wanted revenge. So it was a family story. Um, and a, a family story and a, and, a, and a story of justice mm -hmm. for this one particular person in the family. So um, I made it about that. I just made it about a, a, a brother and a son um, getting revenge against people who had wronged him. And I let the story speak for itself. You know, there's, you know, Jack Nicholson used to say, you know, um, uh, when he did the Joker, he's like, you know, uh, let the suit do the work kind of thing. There's there's a certain amount of 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 work that the audience does for you. They're they're invested in the story. They know the story. Almost everybody knows the story of Lucifer, and and you're you're following along and and suspending disbelief. And so whatever we say is is so. It's mm -hmm. it's it's going to be so. And I could leave the big archangel stuff to you because that's in your imagination, and and the rest of it, you know, is the stuff of acting. Yeah. The familial, the familial stuff, the the conflict, the desire to get accepted by and loved by Sam, all of that stuff are just human things that that we all try to do in everyday life. Now, is it true that when you auditioned for Supernatural, you were not actually auditioning for Lucifer? You were auditioning for another character, and you ended up getting Lucifer. Yeah, Eric Kripke says that I I was considered for the part of Castiel, but I don't remember auditioning for that. Okay, okay. And I don't I don't know if he was just considering me for the part of Castiel, or if I came in for the part of Castiel and made it down to the sort of wire between me and Misha. Um, when when uh, Lucifer came around, it was an offer. So I, uh, Jer Jeremy uh, Carver, um, just asked my people if I would be interested in playing Lucifer, and my people asked me if I would be interested in playing Lucifer, and I said. Who wouldn't be interested in playing Lucifer? Now, when you first got the gig, did you know that it would be like for 38 episodes? Or did you initially, did they tell you it would be for maybe one or two? What did they initially tell you about the role? I think I had like four or five episodes in the finale. I don't remember the exact number. And I was pretty sure that Eric Kripke um, envisioned the series as a sort of five season and then done kind of show not and 15 <laughs> not 15 seasons right um so uh, most of us who came back and and either did uh deep recurrings and or series regulars on that show never envisioned that it would go as as long as it did and be as popular as it did i'm grateful for it of course because oh, it's yeah. introduced me to a lot of cool people some of whom are probably watching and listening right now hi guys now you have said in an earlier interview that you are an atheist you are an atheist did that have any impact in how you portrayed lucifer did it play any kind of role no no not at all because um i'm playing a a, a wronged brother and son would you say that that might have helped you a little bit uh it didn't hurt 
whether it helped me, I, I can't say one way or the other. Now, uh, when the show ended, and like I said, you were in like 38 episodes, when you look back on your time on Supernatural, is it one of the most, you know, one of the more memorable experiences that you've had in your career? Yeah, you know, I mean, in real life, I'm sort of an orphan. And as, a, as an actor, you're a, sort of a gypsy, you know, it, mimicking an orphan's life uh, through, through your career you know going from home to home to home to home show to show to show and and never quite settling in one place and and being able to settle in one place for a while felt sort of like family and uh it it, it does leave me with a sort of warm fuzzy feeling inside that uh, i was able to be with a, a group of people one group of people for a pretty long stretch of time and i'd like to duplicate that again with another show because it feels good to go to one place and work with a group of people that you really know, um, it takes away all those obstacles, all yeah. those all those unknowns that can get in your way, and it it frees you up more to be who you want to be okay. on the show. That's fair enough. Now, were you satisfied with the ending that Lucifer got on Supernatural, and was there ever an idea of a full redemption for him? Um, I don't think, uh, was I satisfied? No, I never want Lucifer to go away. I, I'd like him to be sort of always in the, in the background or foreground of, uh, of every show, uh, Supernatural. Um, but there didn't seem to be a, a big movement in the, in the writer's room to give Lucifer a redemption arc. I know one writer wanted to. And I was definitely on her side. I wanted Lucifer to have a redemption arc. But he remained the big bad all the way through. He was irredeemable, I guess, um, for Andrew Dabb. So. I, I think I agree with that. I mean, I agree with the writers. I mean, to give a redemption arc to Lucifer, I don't know. It probably, I don't know, it wouldn't have sat right. Now, when you're going into a character... And uh, the writers don't <laughs> give you a backstory. So you have to fill the backstory of whatever character that you're playing on film or television. What is the process that you go through to fill in for you to more accurately portray someone and give them a backstory? Well, that depends. Um, sometimes it's extensive. Sometimes it's just an image or a suggestion. Uh, sometimes you don't need the backstory at all. You just need to know exactly what you're doing and how you feel about it. Um, and the rest will take care of itself. Look, in, in, in big episodic television where they're doing 23 episodes uh, a, a season, they, you're often thinking that you're acting a certain story that you wind up not acting uh, because, you know, somewhere... Uh, as the series progresses, the writers get ideas and take the character in directions that they themselves didn't know it would go in. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a it's a miracle that given that method of producing any kind of story that a coherent narrative gets out there, but it does get out there. Um, so yeah, I would say I would say I do a lot of backstory work when there's suggestions that there's a backstory. Mm -hmm. um, when there isn't, um, oftentimes, like for Jacob, it was the image of Christ. Jesus, the uh, the carpenter, was uh, was an image that 
I used to motivate me mm-hmm. um, to do the part. Because um, let's face it, that that backstory is way too complicated and crazy um, to to really make a part of yourself. Yeah. But I I related to the idea as Jesus the carpenter, even though I'm an atheist now. I was a pretty intense Christian at one time, and so um, I, I fell in love with that image uh, many years ago uh, from a novel called Master and the Margarita um, by by Bulgakov, Mikhail Bulgakov, and um, so it was a very powerful uh, motivator to me. Okay. Now, looking back, uh, what would you say was the job, the character that you did the most research on, whether out of necessity or just your own personal, you really want to find out how to properly portray someone. Yeah. So that would, that would be two, two characters in particular. Um, Dick Hickok for uh, Capote Mm -hmm. was a, was a real life character. And uh, I wanted to do the, the best I could to render that guy. Um, and there's very little footage on the guy, uh, and there's some there's some audio tape on the guy, which I listened to multiple times. And what what visuals there were on him, I I watched multiple times. And the the book um, in Cold Blood mm-hmm. that um, Truman Capote wrote about the murders that took place in Kansas, uh, and Dick Hickok was one of the participants in that uh, murder. Um, I read that book seven times from cover to cover Wow! just to get the voice of Dick Hickok, because I, I thought Truman Capote did a great job at, at um, really making these real life people, but alive in mm-hmm. a, in a literary sense. And, um, and I sort of, I became an advocate for him. I know that sounds crazy because he was uh, part of a duo that murdered a family in Kansas. Yeah. But the more I, researched him the more i i felt one he didn't personally commit the crime i think it was perry that yeah that committed the crime and he he had suffered from a terrible accident in his in, as a teen that caused severe brain damage if you actually saw pictures of him um you could see that his face was a little misshapen and and true um truman capote would describe it as an apple that had been sliced in half and put together uh in irregularly yeah uh so i felt like the pathology that he demonstrated after the accident because he was actually a pretty normal guy before this accident he developed pathology pedophilia uh and, and other pathologies aggression and stealing and and doing and, and engaging in all this criminal behavior after that accident i have yeah. a feeling it's traumatic had, brain injury I think he had a traumatic brain injury, and I think he would have not have been hanged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in today's world, that's for sure. Uh... The other character I researched was a fictional character of Bishop uh, on Being Human, and that's because they told me I was a vampire who was turned in England in the 17th century. So I, I decided to do a lot of research on England at that time, and um, there's a great book called The Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, which is a, a great recap of a, of a year that I thought would have been the perfect space for a, a, a person like Bishop to have been turned. So I, I figured out where he lived in old London. I figured out 
what his trade was, when he was turned. I had maps and journals and all kinds of stuff uh, to to inform what I hoped would be my behavior. But yeah. you, I don't know how much of it actually made its way onto the screen. I think a lot of it did. Now, you know, having had such a... <clears throat> Uh, epic career as you've had uh, and still going and you look back at all the different characters that you have played over the years and you have spanned the spectrum you play the bad guy, you played the good guy you played everything in between is there a particular type of character that you have not had a chance to play yet that you really want to do? Yeah I want to play Quasimodo <laughs> I love Victor Hugo, um, and I love Quasimodo. And I've seen a number of versions of uh, of that character, and I don't know that anyone's done it heroic justice. Okay. And I, I want to I want to do it heroic justice. All right, there you go. I mean, anyone casting out there, you know, you got your Quasimodo now. Uh... I believe you have also mentioned in a previous interview that you really enjoy playing the antagonist, the villain. Is that true? Yeah, because I think I think the villains are the ones chasing values. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about our our culture, but our culture our culture makes the good guys reactive. The bad guys are the instigators and the initiators of action. Um, I don't think that's the way it works in life. I think it's the opposite in life, to, to be honest with you. I think, I think uh, virtue, virtue is thought and action and productivity, and, um, and, and the bad guys are sort of parasitic and weak and sort of live off of and react to moment to moment what's going on around them. But in narratives, it's, it's the bad guys who want things really badly. Yeah. And 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 will do anything to get that thing that they want, and I I sort of like an aspect of that ambition. I don't like the way they realize their ambitions, but I think ambition is a good thing. Now, do you think that as an actor in general, it is more challenging to play an antagonist rather than a good guy? Not really. I think a lot of good guys, um, a lot of the good guys are just sort of. Um, you know, using their straight behavior and whatever natural charisma they have and um, going into the part with that. And bad guys often can require character adjustments that are outside of your straight behavior that, that make it uh, that, that, that make it interesting. Uh, now, I'm going to sort of reverse that because being simple and honest and just being who you are on camera is also very difficult. So I think being a bad guy presents unique challenges. And I think being a good guy presents unique challenges. That's true. That's true. I don't know. I don't know which is harder. <laughs> uh, now you mentioned also that you were on Dexter as well. Uh, you did a lot more episodes for supernatural, obviously. Would you consider the, I mean, the two very popular shows, uh, were your experiences on each of those shows completely different or were there any similarities between Dexter and Supernatural? Yeah. I mean, um, very, it's, I would say different, you know, um, shoot. I, I was in Dexter in the first after in the first season. So I, I don't even know if it had aired yet. So it was a, it was sort of an unknown phenomenon 
in some ways. Um, and they, 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 they filmed it sort of comic bookishy sometimes. So that yeah. was interesting. Uh, but uh, other than that, it's, it's a set like any other set uh, yeah. with its own style and unique uh, approach. And, and so it's, uh, it's similar and different at the same time. Now, when you get brought onto a set for a long established successful show, uh, for a supporting role, maybe an episode or two, uh, do you feel added pressure and responsibility because of coming on to a successful show as opposed to, you know, coming in from the beginning, beginning seasons where a show is just starting to build momentum? Uh, is there an added pressure to you when you're coming on to uh, a very successful long running show? <clears throat> I mean, I just did a stint on 911, which has been going on for about five years mm -hmm. and uh, is apparently the top show on Fox. But nobody made me feel that way on the show. And uh, the first day is always sort of a bitch, you know, it's sort of getting acquainted with everything and and getting the rust out. Um, but after that, it was pretty smooth sailing. And no, I say I'd say, you know, with anything you do. Uh, you know, the first couple of minutes of it or the first day of it or something is, is always going to be a little bit um, weird. Yeah. You know, and, and then and then you over you become more engaged in the problem and solving the problem than you are worrying about any of the other stuff that makes it weird on the first day. And and you can usually fall into a pretty good, pretty good sync with with everybody. Now, on 911, uh, you also uh you play, you play somebody who was just released from prison, I believe. Again, another bad guy. Now, when you're playing these bad guys, uh, what do you fall back on for inspiration to get into that mode? Well, this guy wasn't released from prison. He actually uh, engineered a breakout. Okay. And he was on death row. So he was a very bad guy. But he was trying to do a very noble thing. And um, and that's what I use to fuel me. Um, the fact that the punchline for me was that I was doing a very noble thing. I was sacrificing my life for my son yeah. so that he could live because he was good and I was bad. And uh, and that's a pretty doggone good story to tell. Yes. I, um, so um, I didn't have to do any uh, I didn't have any time to, to do any homework uh on that part i and i don't know that it would make any difference i don't have to you know live in a prison in my own head for a few days to figure out what it's like to be on death row i only have to know what it's like to want to to do a great thing for someone i love yeah and and that's what i tried to do what would you say was uh some of the most vigorous auditioning for a part uh, if you if you can remember which audition for a particular part, whether TV or film, that was really vigorous, uh, that they put you through the ringer to get. Um, wow. I mean, the old network way of doing things is is always very vigorous. Mm -hmm. So uh, <clears throat> if, if you're going to be a series regular on a network show, <clears throat> you would audition sometimes for the casting director first, and then you would be brought in a second time for the producers. 
and the director possibly. And if they like you, um, you would be brought in for a studio session. Now, before you do the studio session, you would have a work session with the director so that you guys can, you know, um, work on the scene and make it a sort of presentation mm -hmm. so that the studio passes you to the next level, which is the network. Then you go to the network and you audition for them. Now, oh, my God. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I've I've seen you know Broadway actresses melt down in these in these conditions because they're very high pressure. Yeah. Because while while you're in the room waiting room waiting to go in and read for the network or, or the studio, um, they're negotiating your contract. And sometimes you get a call. Uh, don't go in and audition right now. Uh, that we don't want you to to do it. Mm -hmm. They have to they have to come to our terms. So they're they're all this high pressure negotiation is going on about money. And you have to sign contracts before you even go in. There's a, there's, it's, there's a lot interfering with your, or there used to be a lot interfering with your ability to have a real moment, yeah. so to speak. Um, nowadays, they, they do the network audition in a much better way. Uh, see, the, the first way is you have all the detractions of a live performance and none of the benefits. Uh, so you have no rehearsal time and you're in front of people, you have one shot and that sucks. That's not really the way you're going to be doing it when you actually get the job, you know. And if you're on stage doing a live performance, you have four to six weeks to rehearse the damn thing. <laughs> so it's in you or it's not. Uh, now they started to adjust this, thank God. I don't know, remember which network was the first to do it. But after you got through the casting director, producer, director process, uh, you would do a work session. And the work session, uh, which used to be just, you know, you, you talk things out with the director and maybe run it a few times with them until they were satisfied. Then you went in to do it live with people. This time they filmed your work session. And then that film was taken to the network and they made decisions based on that. That was a that is a far better way of doing things, because that sort of sort of is similar to the way you're going to do things when you get on the set. Mm hmm. This this reduces the the advantage that some very good auditioners have who can't act, but they're very good auditioners. Yeah, uh, it reduces the the leg up that they might have in in the audition process because now you're working with the creatives and they're watching to see how you adjust and how you render the material and how you're thinking through the process and that's valuable for them. Yeah, and they're also they're also you know there's there's a component to acting um, that. Um, is, is a real thing that I didn't consider for many years, but I, I have over the last 10 years. And it's it's been a tremendous boost to my career. And that is, um, I used to just think about the acting, but you, you also have to think that the people sitting in the room with you are asking themselves a question. Do I want to work with this son of a bitch for the next six years? And, and that means when you walk in intense and moody, like a, a method actor, you, you may be sending off signals that you're going to be goddamn difficult. And, uh, and even if the product is the best they've seen that day, they're not so sure that they're going to invest in you. They, they may go for the guy who's maybe a little less skilled, but he's great to talk to. And I think yeah. I want to stay with that guy for six years. So I had to make adjustments in my work over the last... 12 years or so um, where I wouldn't go in method, you know, I wouldn't go in all in character the way I, the way I used to, I'd go in, I'd talk if they needed me to, or if, the, if it was a particularly intense scene, I'd say, can we talk after? I just want to 
get this out and then we can, you know, we can, we can, uh, we can wrap. But they knew that I was, uh, you know, uh, an okay dude to work with. No, you want to let them know that, hey, I'm not, you know, this is me getting into the mood and the mode. This is not who I really am. Yes, unless the unless the directors and producers are actors, they can get confused about that when they see you in there. Hmm. They, they they can often associate the guy that's stepping in in this mode doing the scene when he walks in with the guy who's playing the playing the part, and see, that's, uh, that's not great. a good association. That's great information right there. Uh, going back to uh, Lost, uh, actually. Hold on for that for a second. You mentioned earlier about the 23-episode season. Now, that seems to have gone away, okay, within the last three, four years. Yeah. Uh, Seasons on shows where we would have anywhere between 18 to 23 episodes. Now you're looking at 8 to 12. Do you like that? Yeah. When it comes to storytelling? Yeah, a lot. And I'm sure the writers like it a lot because... They, they know their arcs. They know the arcs of the character. And you get a sense for the whole series. Now you get the whole series in one fell swoop. And you can read from episode 1 to 10 and, um, and know your part. Whereas before, you're sort of, you, you may have, a, have been doing the character for many years and have a grasp of the character and know what you're doing. But you don't know where they're going with it because they don't know where they're going with it. So I think it's great. You get a you get a great consistency of narrative. I think there's no holes in a story like there can be in these long running um, series like Supernatural, where you can find a bunch of holes if you're if you care to look at that kind of stuff. There's no holes. The the, the plot is really tight. The character development is really tight, and um, you feel um, like there's no contradictions. You're not yeah. acting one thing one day and something else another day because the the writers are, are still trying to figure out what they want so i love it i and it, we may have ripped that off from the bbc because the bbc was doing limited series for a long time if you watch the office you know the office was a six run six show mm-hmm. series you know and i think they did uh, two two seasons of it with a finale that was crazy good and then we started copying them here and i think it was great you know when showtime started doing 10 episodes and For me, I would say it was Netflix. When Netflix started producing their original content, I think way back with House of Cards was one of their first, and they were dropping, what, like eight-episode seasons. Very soon after, everyone started to follow suit. and Yeah, yeah, Netflix Netflix has revolutionized everything, Mm -hmm. for sure. They have changed... Everything and and the great and I and what I love about shows now is that you can binge it. They they release the whole series, you mm-hmm. know. And they might do a couple episodes as a teaser, one or you know two three episodes as a teaser. I think the boys is sort of making you wait a little bit from week to week for their um for their shows, but for the most part, you can see the whole thing in one fell swoop, and that's great at your own convenience. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, going back to Lost for a second, what do you think it is about Jacob that has stuck with in people's minds for so long? What is it about that character that makes him stick out? Um, well, well, in part, you know, he he was talked about through the through quite a bit of the show before he made an appearance. Mm-hmm. I think I talked about it enough to 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 be a significant part of the mythology for people. And 
more than anything that Jacob does, it's it's what he is in the mythology to people that I think particularly makes him stick in in people's minds. So I think I think it's I don't know that it's him, it's, you know, specifically. I just think it's what he represents. The mythology behind him. Yeah, and and the the, the crazy, interesting labyrinthian stuff that's around him that people are still trying to figure out to this day. Absolutely, that makes total sense. Uh, now, moving forward in your career, uh, because you have done pretty much everything uh, when it comes to being in front of the camera, what do you want to do that you have not done yet you know i'd love to i'd love to do more character intensive stuff um you know we'll we'll see what happens in the future um i'm certainly hoping american rust gets picked up for a season two for showtime i think it's doing well yeah i think i think people are going to love the uh the finale i think it's a real can i cuss on this show yes it's a real shit hits the fan type of finale and it's not just uh, one shit hitting the fan. It's multiple shits hitting many fans. So there's, uh, you're going to be poised over a lot of cliffs, I think, at the at the very end of the show. And I hope it's enough for people to want to see where the train wreck is going to happen or if it's going to happen. Um, and so I'd, I'd really like that show to get picked up. I'd really, I really love working with, um, with uh, everybody on that show. And ho- hopefully COVID will be a little bit more behind us so we could feel more like a a show yeah. you know that then then it it felt having to deal with the covid protocols which separates us all from each other and and makes us block shoot and there's a lot of a lot of crazy stuff you have yeah. to do um to people make the show happen. people don't understand i mean they hear about it you know with us talking and on the news about covid protocols on on sets but until you actually pick up the SAG uh, like signatory form of what you got to do to put a production together. It's crazy. I mean, they don't really fully grasp the, the safety protocols that are in place that ha- they have to be in place to keep people safe. Uh, but it's, it's beyond belief and how crazy, how difficult does that make you uh, able enable to do your job? I mean, it's uh, it it just makes you feel a little less connected, you know, so and and you need the connection and camaraderie between the cast members. I think I think I think that sells. I I think it's it's a part of it's a natural part of being together that makes your work easier. Right. Mm -hmm. It, It reads it reads on film that you like one another or that you have a relationship with one another and you're not you don't have to work on that. You do. When you don't have the relationship, because you. Oh, I think he froze up there. Mark, you with us? Hold on. Let me see if we can get it back. Oh, here we go. Sorry about that, guys. Let me see if we can get Mark back. Let's see. Let's try them again. It looks like his internet might have gone out. That sucks. There we go. 
Hey, Mark, you hey. there? Hey, we got you back. Yeah. We got Yay. you back. Sorry awesome. No, no worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm glad we got you back. So, yeah, you were talking about the COVID protocols and how basically when that disconnect behind the camera is there, it it shows itself in front of the camera, you know, the the authenticity that is brought to the characters. I think so. I mean, luckily, our you know, that show has a bunch of old pros in it, you know, so um, it's, it, you know, we I think we overcame the obstacles pretty well, but it's just something internally that I feel. I don't feel, you know, as as connected to everybody because we're not we're not going out to dinner. We're not breaking bread with each other like, you know, most casts do. Yeah, 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 I completely understand that. And we are pretty much out of time. Guys, Mark is on American Rust Showtime. Uh, check him out. The, is, the first season is coming to an end, or has it already ended? I think we're coming up to the season finale pretty soon. I think I've heard on social media maybe one or two more episodes left. Okay, because I'm a couple of episodes behind binge-watching. I mean, well, you can't... <laughs> to get caught up guys check it out yeah american rust on showtime it's a great show mark i want to thank you so much for being our guest tonight any final thoughts you want to share with our audience before we go <laughs> and thanks for having me on as a guest uh, it was fun talking about this i hope people got some value out of it yes we had a nice big crowd tonight everyone enjoyed it i enjoyed it uh thank you for being our guest thank you to our, our audience we're going to watch this while watching this live. We're going to watch this later on. Uh, on behalf of Mark and myself, stay safe. And until next time, guys, stay walking. Good night.